0: Welcome to the ninth episode of the second season of Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Our purpose is to empower members of our community with resources, support, and advocacy information. According to the World Health Organization, breastfeeding is one of the most effective ways to ensure child health and survival. If every child was breastfed within an hour of birth, Given only breast milk for their first six months of life and continued breastfeeding up to the age of two years, about 800,000 child lives would be saved every year. Globally, less than 40% of infants under six months of age are exclusively breastfed. Adequate breastfeeding counseling and support are essential for mothers and families to initiate and maintain optimal breastfeeding practices. The American Academy of Pediatrics states, breastfeeding is a natural and beneficial source of nutrition and provides the healthiest start for an infant. In addition to the nutritional benefits, breastfeeding promotes a unique and emotional connection between mother and baby. In the policy statement, Breastfeeding and the Use of Human Milk, published in the March 2012 issue of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Pediatrics reaffirms its recommendation of exclusive breastfeeding for about the first six months of a baby's life, followed by breastfeeding in combination with the introduction of complementary foods until at least 12 months of age and continuation of breastfeeding for as long as mutually desired by mother and baby. This recommendation is supported by the health outcomes of exclusively breastfed infants and infants who never or only partially breastfed. Breastfeeding provides a protective effect against respiratory illnesses, ear infections, gastrointestinal diseases, and allergies, including asthma, eczema, and atopic dermatitis. The rate of Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, or SIDS, is reduced by over a third in breastfed babies, and there is a 15% to 30% reduction in adolescent and adult obesity in breastfed versus non-breastfed infants. Approximately 75% of newborn infants initiate breastfeeding. Hospital routines more and more attempt to accommodate the breastfeeding mother pediatricians promote the advantages of breastfeeding to mothers and infants as well as the health risks of not breastfeeding. As such, choosing to breastfeed should be considered an investment in the short- and long-term health of the infant rather than a lifestyle choice. Clearly, these two respected organizations see the value of breastfeeding. However, it is not uncommon when a mother is told her child has a congenital heart defect for all hope of breastfeeding to be lost. It seems to me that if any babies really need to be breastfed, it's babies with congenital heart defects. Because of the health benefits, it seems like a no-brainer that heart moms should breastfeed their babies. Unfortunately, there are a number of myths surrounding breastfeeding a baby with a congenital heart defect or CHD. Today, we will talk with two heart mothers who successfully breastfed their babies about their experiences. We will also talk with a nurse who specializes in helping mothers to breastfeed their babies. Our guests today are heart moms Amelia Willis and Lauren Watson and nurse and breastfeeding specialist Marie Biancuzo. Amelia Willis is a full-time heart mom to her two-year-old son, Jensen. He was prenatally diagnosed with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, or HLHS. Before his birth, Amelia's family temporarily relocated from North Carolina to the Philadelphia area so he could undergo his palliative surgeries at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Jensen had a very complicated stage one surgery, also known as the Norwood procedure, that required multiple surgical revisions and he ended up on extracorporeal membrane oxygen, or ECMO. Jensen also suffered a paralyzed vocal cord, which left him unable to breastfeed and left Amelia heartbroken. After many months of pumping, fortifying, and learning how to nurse, they finally managed to have a successful breastfeeding experience. Jensen was able to nurse like any other baby for an entire year. Encouraging other moms about breastfeeding has become Amelia's passion. Whether someone else's child is healthy or not, she believes everyone can use support. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Amelia. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It seems like you had a really rough time nursing Jensen in the beginning. Did doctors try to discourage you from pumping and using breast milk, or was your whole medical team behind your decision to eventually breastfeed Jensen?
2: I was actually surprised by the amount of support we received from our medical team. My husband and I made it very clear from the beginning that I wanted to nurse, and until Jensen was given the green light to do so, we wanted to give him pumped breast milk. And so everyone from the labor and delivery nurses to the cardiac ICU, his surgeon, his attending, speech therapists, everyone was so willing to accommodate us and give Jensen breast milk. There was even a time when Jensen, like a lot of other heart babies that I know, needed to gain weight. And so his team had suggested fortifying his breast milk with formula. I told his nurses that I really wanted to try to avoid formula if we could. So they spent a lot of time with me sitting down and showing me how to separate out breast milk to get some extra calories. So it just seemed like everyone we dealt with was genuinely respectful of our decision. And that took so much stress off of me and made it easy for me to keep up a milk supply and stick with my goals.
0: Wow, that's so awesome. You are the first mom that I have spoken to who has had that much support with regards to her decision to breastfeed her baby. That is stupendous. I wonder if that's just something that's special about Children's Hospital of Philadelphia or not. Maybe, (laughs) hopefully, people are starting to recognize how important it is for our children to have breast milk and to encourage the moms because one of the things that I saw as a mom in the hospital was that so many moms would get so stressed out about their baby being in surgery or their baby having complications, which it seems like they all do, that uh, they felt they were unable. They felt they couldn't pump. Or when they went to pump, they weren't getting very much out and they were discouraged and stressed out. So it sounds like with all the support you were getting, maybe that wasn't as much of a problem for you.
2: Right. I mean, it's so stressful being in the hospital and having a baby, so critically ill. It's stressful for any mom, especially a mom that's trying to keep up a milk supply for her baby. And that added stress of feeling like you don't have support, that can really dwindle your milk supply. And so actually I ended up with an oversupply. I It was an oversupply of love and support from our, <laughs> our uh, family and friends and uh, support staff. Everyone is great. So
0: we ended up with too much milk actually from all the support. <laughs> Oh my gosh, what a great problem to have. Well, exactly. how old was he then when he finally was able to nurse successfully? Because it sounds like he went through quite an ordeal before he was able to finally nurse with you.
2: He had a very rough start. And so he was five months old when he successfully nursed for the first time. He was one month post Glen. And so just before the surgery, we had weaned him off of his feeding tube. He had passed the swallow study and he had been taking bottles by mouth very well. So I felt like he was in a good place and that we were ready to try nursing. So we were at our home pediatrician in North Carolina, and we met with their lactation consultant, and she happened to be very experienced with premature babies who have a lot of the same issues as our congenital heart defect babies. So she was very understanding of all that we had been through, Jensen and I both, and she worked with us on positioning and latch and had a lot of great advice. So, right there in her office, the first appointment we had with her, Jensen started nursing. And I was completely shocked that he caught on so fast. I cried tears of relief after months and months of
0: convenience and stress. Yes. Yes, that's so awesome. Now, how long was he able to nurse that first time? It was
2: about 20 to 30 minutes, which was. Incredible for a baby that's one month (laughs) post-op, and he was just, you know, he'd been through so much. And so 20 to 30 minutes, like they typically recommend, I think, uh, I was very impressed. Mm -hmm. He is a strong-willed little boy.
0: He is. I'm impressed, too. And I'm impressed with you that you (laughs) had to go through weaning him from a feeding tube first and going through passing the swallow test and all that. I mean, you had a lot of hoops to jump through before you could do something that must be just (laughs) take for granted. that's the thing is that people who have children who are heart healthy, they don't even give it a
2: second thought. Right. Yeah. And so that's why I'm hoping that we can get the word out. Like, it can be done. I have proof Mm -hmm. and I will tell anyone that cares to listen, it can be done. It's, It's hard work, but it can be done.
0: Well, it seems like you had a whole team of people helping you from the speech pathologist to the nurses to the lactation consultant. How important do you think it is to have a team approach like that?
2: I think that was absolutely vital to our success because we had people with all different types of experience.
0: His nutritionist,
2: he had one perspective, and his lactation consultant had other areas that she was very experienced in. And then his doctors even had input. Some of them, you know, not as much as you would expect from the lactation consultant, but they were all willing to give advice and think of new ideas. It was vitally important to have just a team approach to our breastfeeding relationship.
0: Yeah, I think that is just wonderful that you had an entire team. Everybody was on board. You all had the same goal. That makes a huge difference because I think you're setting yourself up for success. Definitely.
2: And, of course, other than our medical team, I had a great support system in my family. My husband was a huge cheerleader for us and he was always reminding me of why I wanted to keep going because I felt like quitting a lot, and he would remind me of, of my end goal was to just nurse my baby, and so he was such a great help, and I could not have done it without
0: him, definitely. Wow, oh, that's such a sweet story. I love that. That's wonderful. It's so nice when you have family members who come to your aid at that time because we're sleep-deprived. <laughs> We've just given birth. We right. have these babies who are critically ill. We're sleep-deprived. We're not in our normal homes. We're in hospital settings, and it's very easy to get depressed and feel overwhelmed. So having that support from your yes. husband and your other family members, Wow. That really does make a huge difference. So what was the most frustrating part about not being able to nurse Jensen for five months?
2: I would say the most frustrating part was just feeling helpless. I felt like I wasn't taking care of my own baby. I feel like holding your baby close and feeding him as a newborn is such a basic part of motherhood, and I just felt like I was missing out. I wanted nothing more than to just scoop him up out of his hospital bed and hold him and nurse him. But there was times that he was too critical. We couldn't hold him, of course. He was too sick for that. And so we had all these other people around him, nurses and respiratory therapists that were doing all these things to help him recover from these major surgeries. And I felt like I had nothing to do or that I was missing out on those crucial bonding moments when they're a newborn.
0: I hear you. When Alex was in the hospital, I was so frustrated because I wasn't a nurse. I didn't know how to care for him the way I had been caring for him before he had his surgery. And I felt that the only thing that I could do that only I could do and none of these nurses or doctors or technicians could do was pump milk for Alex. (laughs) (laughs) I was anxious about going and pumping the milk and storing it, and I was so stressed that sometimes it felt like I wasn't getting much of anything, but it didn't matter. I kept going, and I would focus on what he looked like, what he smelled like, and just close my eyes, and sometimes I cried because he was in a bad spot. But a lot of times, just by envisioning him and thinking about what he smelled like, I was able to go ahead and produce some milk, but it's really hard. A mom feels like her major job is to take care of her baby, and when they're in a the hospital like that, we're limited on the amount of care that we can contribute. So I commend you for doing the pumping to the point where you had extra. I think that's amazing. Oh, <laughs> thank don't, you. I not know that we had extra. <laughs> we
2: were very lucky. Yeah. I, you were. I you were. Huge oversupply. Did and you... We were so blessed.
0: <laughs> yeah. Did you donate your milk? I was actually unable to
2: donate. Actually, funny enough, because I take allergy medicine every day, and so that disqualified me from donating. I was really disappointed that I couldn't. I did share some with uh, family members, so I had other babies in the family, and we shared breast milk, so it worked out.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, that's great. Amelia, what's best advice do you have for someone wanting to nurse her baby who has a critical congenital heart defect like HLHS if she's going to be separated from her baby while the baby is recovering from that open heart surgery that they need?
2: I would say the biggest thing that made the difference for me was to stay determined. Having that support system around me to remind me that This is your goal. This is what you want to do. And they helped me. I had to remind myself of my end goals. I had kind of done some research. Jensen was prenatally diagnosed. So I had done some research and realized not many babies with these defects are breastfed. So I knew that it would be a rocky road, but I was determined to try. I wanted to participate in Jensen's success. So I talked with lactation consultants and therapists, and they gave me things to do that could make me part of Jensen's recovery doing skin-to-skin, baby-wearing, dipping his pacifier in breast milk, just lots of things that I could do as his mom to make me feel like I was part of his recovery.
0: Oh, wow, I love that. Tell me a little bit more about the skin-to-skin.
2: Once Jensen was to a point where he was stable enough that I could hold him, generally once he was off of the ventilator, the breathing tube, we could pick him up and hold him, and I would hold him against my chest, And he had no clothes on, and so we had direct skin-to-skin contact. So it was just time for us to bond, to spend time together, for him to smell me. I think for me to smell him, that really helped my milk supply. I think that was invaluable time that we spent together that really helped me to feel more connected to him and to be even more determined to nurse this baby. (laughs) I felt determination like no other after doing skin-to-skin.
0: Wow, I haven't heard of anybody doing that before, but it is something that other heart moms and I have talked about that we wish they would do the minute the baby was born because when they snatch your baby away and take them to the ICU and you don't have any of that skin-to-skin time, it feels like a loss. And so I was hoping that that would be something that we could advocate for, and that is immediately after the birth, if the baby is not in distress, give them a few minutes of skin-to-skin time before you have to take them away. I know they have to be taken away for a lot of different tests and everything, and you don't want the baby to crash, of course, while they're skin-to-skin with you, but I just think there's something about them smelling you and you smelling them. Like you said, I think it helps the milk supply and, that's how we do the bonding. That's where it all starts yes. from. So I love it that they did that with you. That's wonderful. And then dipping a pacifier in your breast milk, I hadn't heard of that before. So when were you yeah, using the
2: pacifier? He was discharged. So he was still working on feeding, and we had determined that he had the paralyzed vocal cords. So we knew that he wasn't going to be able to swallow liquid breast milk just by itself. So we would just do literally one drop of breast milk on a pacifier and I felt like if he can only have one drop, then it should be a drop of breast milk just to get, you know, the taste, just to work on his suck reflex. We would also do cotton swabs and dip it in colostrum and swab that around his mouth. That was when he was still intubated. Just anything that we could do to stimulate the suck reflex or to get that breast milk in him.
0: That's all awesome advice. I love everything that you said. That all sounds perfect. <laughs> now I can see why you really were able to have a successful experience. You did all the right things and then some. I'm really impressed. <laughs> well, <William>. Thank you <laughs> and I'm so glad you're out there being an advocate. I mean, you obviously have a lot of information that you can share with others and really help people. I know a lot of people are afraid that when their baby has to have a feeding tube that there goes their chance to ever nurse their baby but Jensen's evidence that that doesn't have to be the case.
2: Right, and it was not easy to wean him off of the tube and then to wean him off of the bottle, but it took work, and even once he started nursing, we still had issues. We could only nurse him in certain positions because he had sensory issues were so great that I couldn't hold him a certain way. So it's not easy, but once we got it down and figured out what worked for Jensen and I, it was so easy, and it was so, so worth it. Totally worth all this and the pain that we had gone through.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience, Amelia. I'm just so inspired by everything that you shared. I really am. Thank you. Thank you for having me and letting me share my story. Well, it was my pleasure. And now I get a chance to talk with Lauren Watson. Lauren Watson is a wife, she's a part time small business owner and a full time mother to two children. Jackson, who is almost six, and Addison, who will be two in November. Addison was diagnosed in utero with tricuspid atresia, hypoplastic right heart syndrome, a VSD and ASD, and transposition of the great arteries. Lauren breastfed Addison before and after two heart surgeries, both of which involved complications and questions about Addison's survival. Lauren is a native Texan who grew up in the Dallas area but who now lives in rural East Texas on wooded land with a creek. She received a bachelor's degree in elementary education from Stephen F. Austin University in Nacogdoches, Texas, in 2004. In her brief moments of spare time, she enjoys sewing, cooking, watching movies, online advocacy for CHDs, participating in a political process, and playing outdoors with her family. She also homeschools Jackson and helps her husband manage their outdoor plant nursery. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Lauren.
3: Hi, thanks, Anna, for having me.
0: Well, I'm so happy to be talking to you. You and I have so much in common because I nursed my sons and I also homeschooled my sons.
3: (laughs) Oh, I did not know that. That's really awesome. Yes. Yes.
0: Well, you mentioned in your bio that you were able to breastfeed Addison before and after her heart surgeries. And that seems to be fairly uncommon with many children who have complex congenital heart defects like she does. She has both hypoplastic right heart syndrome and transposition of the great vessels. Those are two complex congenital heart defects. How soon did she have her first surgery, and
3: can you tell me a little bit about your opportunity to start nursing with Addison? Yes, ma'am. She was born at the Women's Pavilion at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, and so what was really neat is after she was born, She was taken immediately away, even though she was born pink and she looked great. And she could have started nursing at that point, but they still wanted to take her away to NICU. So we were separated at first, and I was able to start pumping. But it was great. We were still in the same hospital. I could go visit her, but every time I tried to breastfeed her, they would give me opportunities. I would get there, and they had just given her a bottle. So I was able to hold her and get that bonding time. We did do kangaroo care. That's what they call the skin-to-skin contact in Houston. And so I immediately, two hours after surgery, started pumping and did that for every two hours at the beginning It was flowing, it was going really great, and then after about 12 hours, just everything stopped, and I had to keep pumping for like 24 hours with nothing. What was really neat is in the end, my milk did come in. I did not get to be with her until four days after they finally released her. She did not need her first surgery until she was around three months old.
0: Oh, wow. So it sounds like maybe Addison's a little bit like my son, Alex. Alex also had transposition of the great vessels, but he had hypoplastic left heart syndrome, and he also had an ASD and a VSD. And what my doctors told us was that he had so many defects that some of them actually compensated for each other. Is that the same case with Addison?
3: That is the same thing for her. Like her VSD is actually helpful in her heart defect. So with her heart, it helps her. But before her first surgery, she was in heart failure. So her breastfeeding was going great. Like we were really breastfeeding well, but her weight gain was slow simply because she was in heart Mm -hmm. failure. And so we continued breastfeeding up until surgery, and that's when everything kind of went not as planned for Addison because she did not respond well to surgery, and she had her crash. She coded, and her heart rate plummeted, and her blood pressure did, and they had to do chest compressions, and that was the hardest time I found to pump because you are so stressed out. You don't know if your baby's going to survive, but It's weird because at the same time it gave me something to do. I had a purpose. I had something to do. When I couldn't help her, I could help her at least give her what she wanted when she recovered. Like she loved to breastfeed. She really loved being with her mama and having that contact.
0: Oh, and I'm sure you loved it. I mean, for me, having Alex there and me being able to do that one thing that nobody else could do for him meant so much to me. Because I did feel so helpless, just like what Amelia was saying earlier. I think the worst part for me, too, was that I was separated from my son, and I wasn't able to care for him. And I had a healthy child before I had Alexander, just like you had a healthy child, too. You had Jackson. So we know what it's like to be the mom of a healthy child. And I kind of felt like I had something stolen away from me when Alex had to go in the hospital. Did you feel like that, too?
3: I felt frustrated because I knew that she could breastfeed, but they were doing the testing and all that. But I understood, and I think what helped is that I came prepared. I was ready. I had breastfed Jackson before, so I was ready to pump. I love the hospital-grade pumps they give you at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. They (laughs) gave me all the supplies that I needed, the milk bank where you send your milk. It was just wonderful. We were able to give Addison donor milk in the NICU because she just didn't tolerate formula. And so that was a real blessing to have that available for Addison and then available throughout. But she didn't need it. I mean, my milk came in and we did good. But one thing that during those stressful moments, sometimes I would only get half an ounce so I would have to really train my mind to focus mm-hmm. during that time on the positive that it doesn't matter if I just got half an ounce, at least I got something. And that's advice the lactation consultant gave me is to not look at how much you're pumping out, but just be glad that you made something. And that mm-hmm. really helped me get through all of that time. And that was sometimes just time me and my husband went, I would pump and he would come with me just to encourage me. It was a really good time for us to just regroup and get stronger before we went back and visit her and see the ICU. That's wonderful.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. My mom was the one who came with me and helped me through that process. And you do need to just focus on the positive. But you're right. Sometimes even when you're focusing on the positive, your body doesn't produce as much milk as you want it to. And I think you're right that being consistent and keeping with the program anyway, no matter how much you put out, that that's the way that your milk will come in fully and, eventually everything will work out. And I think it's a lot different when you're using a machine than when your baby is skin-to-skin with you. Don't you think so?
3: It was a total difference because I knew when she was with me that I was making what I needed. And I felt like really God helped me through that time. But he helped us through all those times. where it's very stressful. But I felt his peace and his presence during that time because I know I should not have been able to produce milk. I was so stressed out and sad. But he carried us through that whole circumstance. And when I got to be back with her, I know everything just came back. And her first surgery, they would not let me breastfeed her a while after her surgery. They wanted to measure everything. But by the time her second surgery came around, Texas Children's Hospital is a great hospital. They were very encouraging about breastfeeding. But after the second hospital, they had that history in, about Addison. they known that from strictly breastfeeding, she had done so well. So they let her breastfeed in the CVICU when she had an arterial line. in, And that was an interesting thing. Really? Scene nursing her with all those lines. Well, the background story to that is that before her Glenn, during pre-op blood draw, she went into cardiac arrest just from the blood draw from crying too much. So I think that that's why in CVICU they let her nurse, because they just didn't want to tick her off, and she really loves breastfeed. And so they know that my little stubborn, red-headed baby girl loves breastfeed, and you better give her what she wants or she'll freak out on you. Wow. Well,
0: good for her. I think I think a lot of our heart kids are, have that stubborn streak, and that's what gets them through. So it's one of those double-edged swords. On the one hand, you're so thankful that they're stubborn enough to fight for their life and to make it. And on the other hand, when they're two and three years old and they're stubborn, watch out.
1: Yes. <laughs> they really learn
0: the yes. word no very well. Lauren, what do you think is the most important element in successfully nursing your CHD baby? It sounds like you had so much right going for you, but what was the most important element?
3: For me, it was maintaining milk supply during the times when she was in ICU. And so I think the best way to do that is have a positive mindset. For me, it was my Christian faith that got me through because the Bible verse that kept coming to my mind was consider it pure joy when you face trials because those test your faith and give you perseverance. And I found that through those moments where she had two surgeries that was in 2013 I had my faith really tested and I had to persevere but I had to have a positive attitude and look at the positive side of things and I think that really helped with my milk supply because I wasn't able to nurse her I went straight from her breastfeeding all the time to nothing to just going to a pump where it's cold and it's not as fun but I tried to Mm -hmm. make that time fun like I watched Mm -hmm. movies and I Talk to my husband or talk to my mom or my grandmother. They all came in there with me to help me, and they'd helped me wash my stuff, the pump supplies, and Gosh. we made the best out of a a bad situation. It did build our perseverance right. I love that the positive
0: attitude and all of that support I think it does help to set you up for a good outcome, even if it's not a perfect outcome. It's a much better outcome than if you do just fall (laughs) apart. It sounds like you refuse to just fall apart, and I'm proud of you for that. That's awesome. So now Addison is 20 months old, is that right?
3: Yes, ma'am, and she... I was doing the math, and
0: I thought, oh, my goodness, she's already 20 months old. So are you still nursing her now?
3: Yes, she is still nursing. She is a thriving toddler. She is just a bundle of joy. She is running, doing all the things. We worried after her second code before her glenn, that was in June of 2013, we worried that she could have neurological damage. She had oxats in the 20s and 30s for hours. And so it was very comforting after that second surgery when she – did nurse. I was like, whoa, she's doing it. We were really hoping our girl would be the same girl that we brought in. And since her glen, the glen really helped her. She went from the first percentile to the 60th percentile. And we have just been very amazed by her growth.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, she needed her glen. She did. I hadn't planned on asking you this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. So when is she scheduled for her Fontan?
3: She will have her Fontan when she is three, and I'm hoping she will wean before then. She is showing no interest in self-weaning at all, but they wanted to have her Fontan at three or when she was around 35 pounds.
0: Okay. What advice would you give to pediatric cardiologists or cardiothoracic surgeons when they're working with a mom who wants to breastfeed her baby?
3: To me, if the baby prefers breastfeeding like Addie, Then let them breastfeed. During the time when Addie was waiting on her first surgery and was in heart failure, and she was having very slow growth, and to me, going to fortified breast milk versus breast milk, we were not really going to have any different outcome because she was in heart failure, so it didn't matter what she was taking in. She just wasn't going to gain as well, but her cardiologist did make her go. She had been on the breast for a month and a half and made her go strictly to bottle, and she said, nope, we're going to do fortified breast milk and that's it, no breastfeeding at all. And so we went home, and it was over Christmas, and by the sixth feed, it was Christmas Eve exactly, by the sixth feed she was decreasing so rapidly what she would take from a bottle that we finally as a parents had to make the decision to give her the breast again. And she was so much happier, and she was eating, and we went to our next cardiology appointment, and she had gained. And at that point the cardiologist was like, great, the fortified breast milk worked. And we looked at her, and we were like, We confess that, no, she's just been breastfeeding the whole time, that it was over Christmas and we couldn't call you, and she did well breastfeeding. She's just a breastfeeding girl. She loves it. That is so awesome. I love
0: this, Lauren, because you trusted your gut as a mom, and you made the executive decision that she's not doing well with this bottle, but I think she can do okay with the breast, and you made that decision, and look. She's just done beautifully since then, and I'm glad that you told the doctors because I think if more moms had the same kind of experience and trusted their gut and then the baby did do well, maybe more cardiologists would be open to letting them exclusively breastfeed instead of doing the fortified
3: breast milk. Yes, I think so, and they do have a test now where they can test your breast milk. That was one thing I found at Texas Children's Hospital, and I never had to go to that point. But they do have a way to actually test and see how many calories you are, when you make your milk, you can give a sample.
0: but Mm -hmm. That wasn't even necessary. She was gaining weight. That's all that really (laughs) mattered. Right. There was no test that was going to tell you anything better. Right. Yes, ma'am. That's just awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lauren, for coming on the show and sharing with us. Unfortunately, I have to take a quick commercial break, but don't leave, because coming up we have a nurse who specializes in helping women with breastfeeding. We're going to debunk some myths about nursing a baby with a congenital heart defect and get to the truth when we return to Heart to Heart with Anna.
1: A handbook for parents will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more.
0: Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today we are talking with heart moms Amelia Willis and Lauren Watson and nurse and breastfeeding specialist Marie Biancuso. We just finished talking with Amelia and Lauren about their breastfeeding experiences with nursing their babies with congenital heart defects. Now we will turn our attention to Marie Biancuzo. Marie Biancuzo started helping mothers, babies, and families to succeed at breastfeeding more than 30 years ago. Fondly remembered for decades by mothers, she earned their trust by helping them to cut through the misinformation, bust the myths, and believe in themselves. Among her peers, Marie has received international recognition as a clinical expert, book author, and national-level change agent. She was a founding member of the United States Breastfeeding Committee, the past president of Baby Friendly USA, and the founding editor of Nursing for Women's Health. Marie has both depth and breadth of experience from having worked in community and teaching hospitals with mothers and healthcare providers in nearly all subspecialties of maternal infant health. From the mother's hospital bedside to the university classroom, Marie has honed her skills at helping people be good consumers of healthcare information. A native of the Rochester, New York area, Marie now resides in the Washington, D.C. area, but crisscrosses the country as director of Breastfeeding Outlook, the education company she founded in 1998. Through her courses and seminars, Marie works to help nurses and other professionals learn how to help families with breastfeeding and related perinatal topics. Recognized for her warmth and personable teaching style, Marie continues to provide direct assistance to mothers as well. Marie writes weekly for her blog, Marie's Outlook. Marie is also the host of Born to be Breastfed on Voice America. You can see the link to her radio show on my website, www.hearttoheartwithanna.com, in the bios section. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna Marie.
4: Anna, thank you so much for asking me. I'm really pleased to be able to join you as well as your guests today. I was very interested in their stories.
0: Well, I'm delighted to be talking with you, and this is the second time for us to be on the radio together. Since yes! I was on your show. <laughs> and I think we're going to have a great time busting some myths together. One of those myths is that CHD babies should not be breastfed because so many of them are failure-to-thrive babies, and some people feel there aren't enough calories in breast milk to help CHD babies grow. So can you debunk that myth for us, Marie?
4: Oh, sure. Interestingly, the baby does not necessarily need to be a CHD baby, but there are people who truly believe that there's somehow not enough calories in human milk or they believe that formula has more calories and actually the opposite is probably true. Now, that being said, let me be quick to explain that mothers make milk that has a different caloric value from morning to evening, it is, for example, less caloric in the morning, more caloric at night because of the greater amount of fat. It varies from breast to breast, from mother to mother, from day to day, etc., cetera, et cetera. But the average, a mother will produce milk that is more or less in the 20 calories per ounce neighborhood, and formula up until recently has been 20 calories per ounce. They're now taking it down to 19 calories an ounce on some brands. That's a story for another day. But anyway, where I want to go with that is to say there is nothing deficient about the number of calories that is in human milk. And one of the guests, I think it was Lauren, mentioned that now we can test mother's milk, and that's absolutely true. If you look at those tests, what they basically do is they spin it down. If anybody knows how to spin down a hematocrit, which is what I used to do as a young nurse, we used to just spin it down in our little lab. Now they send it down to the main lab, but it's the same idea. And what actually they find is that mother's milk can be as much as like 28 calories. In an ounce. So that, uh, see, formula is stagnant, and that will right. not be the case with human milk. The mother may very well have a very rich milk. And I would also just like to address what both of your guests talked about when they said fortifying milk. I would caution mothers to make very sure that they understand exactly what that means. Now, I'm sure I'm showing my age here, Anna, but really, mm-hmm. fortifying milk. Is with, but technically, technically it means using milk fortifier. And milk fortifier really does add extra calories, extra phosphorus, and calcium and other minerals and so forth. But formula, I wouldn't really call that a true fortification, although I know that healthcare professionals do use that term. But I think it's kind of confusing because then it bespeaks the idea that somehow that formula is more caloric, and that's just not the truth.
0: Mm-hmm. How interesting, because I really did think that formula must have more calories and must have more no. of something else that we don't produce by our bodies. But one of the things that mm-hmm. I was told by a lactation consultant was that mothers' bodies adapt to their baby's needs. Absolutely. I wonder if sometimes we produce more caloric breast milk if our body senses that our baby needs it.
4: Well, I don't think we have any data on that, but what I can tell you is most of the calories in the milk come from the fat, right? I usually Mm -hmm. explain it as it's like eating a French fry. When you eat the French fry, and by the way, just FYI, two French fries equals 17 calories, all right, most of those calories are from the oil and the fat in the French fry, not the potato. And the Mm -hmm. same is the truth with human milk. Most of your calories are going to come from the fatty part of the milk. And, for example, Mm -hmm. the fat is higher in the evening, is going to give you a more caloric milk in the evening. And, by the way, I have very mixed feelings about testing mother's milk for calorie count because... If it comes out and it's really high, the mother is really elated. And if it comes out and it's not as high as yesterday, she's really bummed out. And that kind of just, it blows Uh, her Mm -hmm. self-confidence.
0: Right, right. Well, another myth that there is is that it's important to know exactly how many ounces of breast milk a baby is taking in, and a person can't do that if they're nursing. So what do you think about that myth,
4: Marie? Well, it certainly is a myth. I would Absolutely agree. It is a myth, and it's well worth addressing. But, you know, actually, nowadays we can measure very precisely how much milk the baby is getting, and that's whether the baby has CHD or not. But let's back up for a moment. The real question here is whether the baby is actually taking the milk, because I'm going to tell you, if the baby's not taking the milk, then... You're not going to have the ounces. So many times people, and I'm talking either parents or professionals, really don't know how to determine if the baby's getting anything at all. All right? And what happens is what they look at is how many minutes the baby has been on the breast. As far as I'm concerned, that information is not really useful. What's really useful is learning that, first of all, the mother actually does have a letdown, which if she's in an environment, you know, it used to be, not so much so nowadays, but it used to be, NICUs were very noisy, very stressed, bang, clang, a flock of residents walking through all of that. So the mother might have a difficult time getting a letdown. But the other thing is you've got to listen for the baby swallowing. I don't care if the baby is at the breast minutes or 20 minutes or 20 days. If you're not getting audible swallowing, then none of this ounces of milk stuff matters. What I would say, and notice that this is my smallest point, nowadays we have scales that measure kids to within two grams accuracy. So you can put the kid on there pre-test and then have the breastfeeding and then you can have the baby weighed after the The breastfeeding and you could tell how many bounces he gained again i have very mixed feelings about that because if the mother comes away and says wow look at how much he got that really boosts her self-confidence but if the baby didn't do so hot that day or that moment or that time then she's really kind of down on herself and honestly you know it's just like adults we don't always eat exactly the same or behave exactly the same whether it's eating or anything else
0: yeah, I can see where that may not be good psychologically for the mother. Yeah. Yeah. And it almost makes the whole breastfeeding experience too clinical. Yeah. <laughs> it's supposed to be. This is what I call performance treatment. pressure, Anna. Right. Right. Exactly. I feel the same way. That would be. That would have really stressed me out, I think. What can a mom do when she is feeling so stressed? How can she relax and actually enjoy the breastfeeding experience? I think not having to do that performance that you were just talking about is (laughs) going to be the first step,
4: but what else can we do, Marie? (laughs) Well, let me be clear. There is a time when you've kind of got to endure that performance pressure, but... You can't get too hung up on exactly what those numbers are exactly every time because as human beings, and that includes babies, we don't all act the same. How many minutes a day do I brush my teeth? Well, you know, probably a little less today than yesterday because I'm busier today, that kind of stuff. So try not to Mm -hmm. get too worried about those things. But I think one of the things that mothers need to be able to do is tap their own natural resources. And the first thing that comes to my mind is, guess what, a hormone called prolactin. Now, prolactin is pro, meaning for, and lactin, meaning milk. This hormone is in all mothers' bodies, or at least all well mothers' bodies, and it not only is for milk, but it has this effect of helping the mother to relax. When I teach my comprehensive course, I show a mother dog who has nine little puppies nursing. Mind you now, she's only got eight teats. And she looks just like so vegged out. And that vegged out look is the effect of prolactin that mothers should be able to recognize when that hormone kind of pops into place. But they got to go with it. They can't fight it. So that's a big piece. I think there are a number of relaxation techniques that I would recommend. Breathing is absolutely the number one and i could just talk about that for way longer than your show but the other one is skin-to-skin contact and one of your guests mentioned that earlier i think it was lauren and skin-to-skin contact we all think about it as being beneficial for the baby and it absolutely is beneficial for the baby unquestionably no doubt there but it is beneficial for the mother now let's Mm -hmm. think about this if we as adults, never mind being women or mothers, if we as adults just have a bad day, what do we want to do? We want somebody to give us a hug. Or mm-hmm. maybe want to slide in the bed next to our spouse and snuggle up and just kind of just feel warm and cozy and skin-to-skin skin is good or skin-to-almost skin is good. This is why we do this, because... Mm-hmm. Skin-to-skin helps us to relax and to settle down. Usually when I teach professionals, I reach out and I do a handshake. And then I ask the group, could I have faxed that handshake? And, of course, everybody laughs. But right. a handshake is skin-to-skin contact, you know? Absolutely. It helps us Absolutely. to relax with, with one another.
0: hmm mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right. And I know I used to be a teacher of the deaf before I started Uh my family. And Uh I would frequently go stand behind my students, and if they were really struggling, I'd put my hand on their shoulder and encourage them. I think you're right, and it wasn't skin-to-skin because obviously they had clothes on, but just that physical contact, just that reassurance that I'm going to help you through this, you don't have to go through it alone, and it's the same way with the breastfeeding. I was really thrilled that both of the moms actually were given that skin-to-skin contact opportunity. That was not encouraged 20 years ago when I was in the hospital with Alex. 20 years ago it
4: was unheard of now it is starting to be the norm. I was fighting for that 20 or 30 years ago, and they frankly thought I was nuts, okay? But now (laughs) there is a ton of research to show how effective it is. But with or without the research, don't you just know from your days of teaching, for example, that it's that human contact that we crave? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It makes us feel better. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about
0: what is probably the biggest myth about breastfeeding a baby with a congenital heart defect. And that is what my son's doctor told me, which was it was too much work. It was too hard for him to nurse.
4: Wish I had a Tell nickel for every time about I heard that, this, Marie. <laughs> oh, brother! Well, first of all, you hear that with children who have a CH defect, but you also hear it with premature babies. You hear it with low birth weight babies. You hear it with babies who have big ears. It doesn't matter what it is, and there's just no truth to it. Now, this is where I think this myth originated, which is the baby has to actually make his jaws go up and down in a rhythmic motion when he's breastfeeding whereas if he has an artificial nipple pretty much any kind of chunk on it is going to get the milk to come out so i think that's how people got this goofy idea but it depends on how you define work there've been a number of studies that show actually that baby's oxygenation levels are very much better hello better when they are breastfed and when they are held skin-to-skin, and Laura and I think mentioned kangaroo mother care, skin-to-skin and kangaroo mother care, more or less equivalent, they're technically not equivalent, but good enough for this show, that you will see that babies will in fact have better oxygenation rates, better PCTO2 levels, that their heart rates are more stable, they have fewer oscillations with the skin-to-skin contact, there are So many studies that show how beneficial this is. So I think that this is just like kind of this myth that has floated around. That myth, Anna, was going before I was a nurse, and I'm still hearing it today. There is not a scrap of science that I'm aware of that actually substantiates that breastfeeding is more, quote, work in the sense of oxygen consumption or utilization,
0: I'm so glad to hear that because as a mom that was my gut instinct. As a mom it was Amelia's instinct or Lauren's instinct. Now I forgot which one told us that she just trusted her gut and, and Amen. I think it was Lauren. That she said, Oh, well, it was during the Christmas holidays, so we decided not to bother the doctors and just trust our gut. Yes. I was like,
3: no, go for yes. it. Because go for I do it.
0: agree hundred percent that I think the breastfeeding is much less work, if nothing else, just because there's the hormones that are released by the mother. But I can't help but wonder if the baby doesn't get some beneficial effect from that as well. Oh, most certainly. Marie? Oh, most certainly. Yes. In a perfect world, Marie, Women would never have to worry about being able to breastfeed their babies, but we heart moms, our world is turned upside down the minute that we're told our baby has a heart defect and is going to need surgery. In a perfect world, if a woman found out in utero she was going to have a baby with a CHD and that she wanted to breastfeed the baby, tell us what she could do to optimize her opportunities for breastfeeding that baby.
4: Well, in my mind, The first thing that would be the most important would be to educate herself about my three favorite words. Milk production, milk ejection, milk transfer. And that is critical for any mother of any baby for any reason, okay? Producing the milk and then ejecting the milk, that is, uh, having a letdown. And thirdly, Mm -hmm. milk transfer, which I talked about a few minutes ago. And I said, if you're not hearing the baby swallowing, then you're not Mm -hmm. getting good milk transfer. So I think just understanding that those three things have to happen, that's critical. Mm -hmm. Twenty years ago I would not have said this, but now I would tell you skin-to-skin contact, skin-to-skin contact, and more skin-to-skin contact as Mm -hmm. often and for as long as possible. Meaning, if you can hold your baby for at least an hour, that would be excellent. Holding the baby for two or three minutes does not necessarily give you all these benefits that I'm talking about. So I would educate myself and I would be an advocate for myself and I would line up my husband, my mother, my great-aunt Millie or anybody else to be an advocate for me. I think I would have some familiarity with some general techniques like for instance the skin to skin contact, but I'd also really look into things like nursing supplementers and other gizmos. And I don't say gizmos in a negative way. I mean these things are out there and they, they're they're helpful for some kids. I think that we as healthcare professionals need to help the mother to mobilize her physical, her mental, and her spiritual and social resources. And if the mother can mobilize those spiritual, physical, mental, and social resources, she's halfway home because that comes to the last point that I would say is critical, which is her confidence. Mm -hmm. You know, Derek Jellif said in 1991 about the importance of confidence. And people probably get sick of me saying, what's the most important organ in the body for breastfeeding? And what do mothers tell me? They tell me uh, the breast. And I say, nope, not at all. The brain. The brain is the most important organ that you have. Believe you can do it. Have Mm -hmm. confidence. Believe in yourself. Everybody will believe in you. And just remember, your baby doesn't know whether you've done this before or not so I, I
3: can't That's tell you how many
4: hundreds of women I've told that to you know your baby thinks you're doing this just great he's never had another mother and usually mothers laugh when I say that but it's true it's true mm-hmm. so it is true. whatever you've got to do to build your confidence get that support mobilize those resources all of the rest of it is teachable and learnable you, you, you know what I'm saying? it um, is
0: absolutely it is. Well, Marie, I'm going to have to take a really quick break, and we just have really gone in great depth, I think, about how we can help these babies with congenital heart defects and help the moms to successfully breastfeed them. Let me take a real quick commercial break, and then we'll have to say goodbye to everyone. Thanks, Marie.
4: All Thank you.
1: Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit hearttoheartwithanna.com today.
0: Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. We have just had the most amazing show. I am so thrilled that I was able to bring two heart moms who have been successful with breastfeeding their babies and Marie Biancuzo, who for decades has been helping women and families and especially their babies to successfully breastfeed. This has just been such an empowering episode for me. I'm just thrilled that we were able to do this. So thank you, ladies. We have one minute (laughs) in the studio together. So I'm going to ask you in turn if you have a question for one of the other guests, and then we're going to have to close our show for today. So, Amelia, I'm going to start with you. Was there anything that you wanted to ask Lauren or Marie
2: not that I was going to ask anything. I was
0: just going to say I'm so glad to hear Lauren's story
2: and Marie's advice because it made me feel like I'm not the only person who thinks that it's so stressful. And and you're talking about trying to relax while you're pumping or nursing and all the anxiety that goes with it. It's so, so nice to hear that it's not just me. It's not just me stressing. It's everyone else feels the same way.
0: That's an excellent comment. I couldn't <laughs> agree with you more. Okay, Lauren, how about you? Do you have a question that you would like to ask Amelia or Marie or a comment that you'd like to make?
3: Yes, I don't have any questions, but I wish I would have heard this when I was pregnant with Addison, and I really hope that there are listeners that hear this today and are encouraged to breastfeed their babies. That's my passion, too, is to give encouragement to those mamas that are struggling with doubt.
0: Well, that's beautiful, and I do believe that the moms who are pregnant with CHD babies who hear this will be encouraged and empowered to try to do the breastfeeding, even if it's a struggle. You two ladies talked about how it was a struggle for you at different times, and yet you were successful, and you have done it. I'm just thrilled to see the success stories that we're hearing now, and now I'll turn to Marie. Marie, did you have something you wanted to ask these two moms or a comment that you wanted to make?
4: I would suggest that people look at a study by Sokolidis, which came out in 2012, talks a little bit about the issue of the too much work. And also, I would like to say that there are more than 200 studies, probably more than 300 studies that show the efficacy of skin-to-skin contact. These are superb, high-level studies. And not only the efficacy, but it also shows that there are no adverse, that is, negative Mm -hmm. effects. So therefore, we all need to be doing it.
0: I agree. I agree. I think it would make a huge difference in a lot of these babies' lives if they could be touching their mommies. And like you said, Marie, as long as possible, not just for a minute or two here and there. And it's difficult when you have lots of tubes and things attached to your baby, but it's not impossible. It's not impossible. And so I think we need to make more of an effort to have that skin-to-skin contact. Well, ladies, you were awesome. This was a fabulous And thank you, thank you so much for coming on.
4: Thank you, Anna. Thanks Thanks. for having us. You all were wonderful.
0: And that (laughs) concludes this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Please come back next week on Tuesday at noon Eastern Time when our topic will be working parents versus stay-at-home parents. Until then, please find and like us on Facebook. Check out our website, hearttoheartwithanna.com. And remember, my friends, there is hope.